Hello, dear listener. Welcome to the July 17th edition of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. I'm Jeff. Frank is out on assignment. Obviously, today is a, a big day for the mainframe. The new system is being launched, and you'll find out more about that uh, through this podcast in the upcoming weeks. We have some interesting segments planned for sure. Today, I am, I'm pleased to bring to you some time we spent with Jay Brenneman. Uh, Jay Brenneman is just, uh, I'm sure every shop has their own Jay Brenneman, but Jay is our guy who just, he seems to know everything, and e- either he knows uh, everything or it bothers him enough that he doesn't know it, that he has to go out and learn it. But he's a guy around here who does ZVM, ZLinux, ZOS. He builds IODFs. He does network config. He does storage. He does pretty much everything. You just have to get past that that gruff exterior. He's, he's kind of a mix between Gilfoyle from Silicon Valley and Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. But we are beyond pleased that he... Uh, he agreed to be on our show. We just had to bribe him with tacos. That's that's not an exaggeration at all. So get ready to learn some uh, some interesting information about Linux and virtualization on the platform. This is Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff, and here comes Old Man Charlie. Set your console to roll delete. It's time for another episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. Welcome today on Terminal Talk. We have Jay Brenneman, SDSM, in our large systems test area. But uh, Jay does a lot, a lot of everything. Some people say I, I know a little bit about a lot of stuff or a lot about a little. Jay does a lot of a lot of stuff, which is why we thought he'd be a, an awesome guest to have in here. So welcome welcome to the studio, Jay. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice to be here. We got your donuts as requested. Excellent, yes. And despite the fact that there is, in fact, a sprinkle in the box. Those, will... those aren't. Sprinkles. How do you put them on? I was told they're not sprinkles. They're not sprinkles. They, on they the are donut. sprinkled upon the donut. Therefore, they are sprinkled. They're, well, they're sprinkled the... upon the cream sticking out of the donut, the so pow- they're not on the donut. The powdered sugar also technically got sprinkled upon. <laughs> Good point. So yeah, we're trying to so you to want keep frosting and cream filling only. Yeah. Okay, we'll keep that in mind for next time. And thank we'll, you. And we'll still provide you tacos for lunch. Well, I, that was expected. Yeah, okay. What you're witnessing here is how work really gets done here. <laughs> Exclusively through bribery. <laughs> Food bartering. And shenanigans. And blackmail. <laughs> Lots of blackmail. <laughs> so moving right along, <laughs> you've been focusing primarily on Linux on the mainframe, right? I have been testing Linux on the mainframe ever since Linux has been on the mainframe. I I actually was part of the initial team that tested SUSE Linux 7 in, I want to say, 2000 for the initial release for S390. That was kind of like a side job from my ZOS service job that I had. And uh, I've been doing Linux basically professionally ever since then. Also have been running it on my laptop since college, so 20-something years. So you know a little bit about it. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with where there's a lot of bodies buried regarding Linux. <laughs> what would you say makes running Linux on the mainframe superior? Well, the really cool about part about it is that Linux is Linux. So if you're familiar with Linux on Intel server hardware, then you can drop into Linux on a mainframe and probably still do 98% of all the administrative tasks that you know how to do from the other platform. The only real differences you'll see are in the way 
network and disk devices are named because, you know, we use a different driver stack. Instead of, you know, dev SDA, you have dev DASDA, you know, but uh, aside from that, it all behaves the same. You'll, you'll probably have trouble getting your printers and sound cards to work. But. Yes. Actually, that's that's an excellent point. A lot, <laughs> way back in the day when we were doing the initial um, SUSE Linux certification work, right, um, SUSE would actually ship us a certification test suite and it would always fail because it could not find the sound card <laughs> and, it, and it would fail because it could not find the CD-ROM drive. <laughs> And we kind of had to like, you know, edit those parts out of the test results. But, you know, aside from that, you know, it's, it's just Linux, man. So the, the the idea of a virtualized only build is something that wasn't really uh, commonplace at the time. We we basically had to start with a, a full stack, a full you know install, and then take out the stuff that yeah, there's not going to be any ham radio drivers or, or sound cards. There's not going to be any uh, Nvidia uh, video card drivers and stuff like that. And got it down to something that installs on a purely virtual server. And and what's weird is that's kind of the default uh, Linux distro you see nowadays. Um, how do you think that's kind of played into what we see today? Yeah, it's weird because, I mean, when we first started doing Linux, right, all of the systems that we were getting, they were derived from the desktop-based builds. And so they came with, by default, the full GNOME or KDE stack sitting on top of it. But you, you don't have a video driver on the mainframe. So, you know, we, I want to say back in like 03, 2003, you know, we basically started standardizing the way, you know, internally we would do Linux installations for the mainframe. So, okay, we hacked out all of the GNOME desktop or KDE support. We removed cups. We removed, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the other printer infrastructure. We removed, you know, you, you don't need to have you know, a, a default mailer installation that's going to send mail to the administrator, right? And so all, all that stuff that has a cron job, we, we pulled all of that out. It's it's funny because you, when what we ended up doing was we built a system that looks a whole lot like CoreOS does or Red Hat, you know, Enterprise Virtualization Server, right? It's just enough operating system that you can SSH into the thing and then install additional libraries on top of it. But, yeah, we were doing that in, like, 2003, but we're kind of, like, off in this little corner of IT world, and it didn't become a thing until later. I remember there was a, there was a problem. Uh, I think we opened a defect on this at one point where when the systems were sitting for X amount of time and not being used, all of a sudden the process was, would start to spike, we couldn't figure out what it was until we found out it's the screensavers coming on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. So a lot of people say, I already have a ton of Linux images running on a bunch of servers. Yeah, I can get them easy. They're cheap. All I need is a credit card. Yeah, well, why would I do this on a mainframe? Well, that's actually a really good point because when when we talk about Linux on the mainframe with customers – Usually the two big hammers we use are software license cost and administrative overhead. So if you're if you're paying for software and you have a lot of software that you are paying for, you will almost certainly get a lot more bang for your software dollar by running that software on a Linux mainframe platform than you will on x86 simply because – we can get more done per core than x86 can with very slim exceptions on extremely high 
CPU utilization stuff, right? If you're talking generic business process things, that's what our system is for. That's what it's designed for. If you're doing, you know, Fourier transforms on data sets to go find oil and it's going to run for six weeks, yeah, don't do that on a mainframe. That's that's not our sweet spot. The other big hammer we've got is administrative cost, right? So if you've got 30 administrators who are sneaker netting around maintaining your x86 infrastructure, you know, we can maintain a lot more virtual infrastructure with a lot less administrative overhead than you can on x86, right? So those are the two big hammers. But you kind of asked about, well, what do we have to offer for a customer that's already heavily into automation and is almost exclusively a free software customer. We don't pay for software here. I have three guys that maintain a farm of a thousand hardware footprints. Like what do we have to offer that group? You know, this is something I've been actually thinking a lot about recently. And and I think it comes down to how much money do you want to spend on software development? Because when you go and do the 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 now vogue microservices architecture right on public cloud infrastructure you basically are doing eventual consistency in your databases to reach the transaction volume you know the 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 read volume that you have to hit you're smearing it across you know three different regions so now you've got a whole bunch of region to region latency to worry about which then impacts your eventual consistency and when you have that eventual consistency issue, you, you're basically making the higher level parts of your application have to take that into account. How do you do a rollback, right? How do you even determine which transaction actually got there first? You know, time and coordinating time across that distributed infrastructure becomes, you know, an absolutely critical problem. And it makes the software development on top of that way harder. Yeah, one of the things that we've been talking about is what Netflix does with eventual consistency. Um, they they benefit from it because if somebody wants to watch the new, oh, I don't know, Spider-Man movie or whatever, um, it goes out to the thousands, if perhaps millions of servers they have and says, do you have this? If not, I'm going to go to the next one. Um, but they, the way they push their movies out there is to start on the East Coast data centers or wherever – and let it slowly propagate across all their systems. And it, it doesn't really matter if one server has it, the other one doesn't, because, well, first off, it's just movies, and second off, it can push you to one that does have it. With data where the value is either true or not true, that's uh, exceedingly different. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, talking about eventual consistency in the context of web clicks for advertising revenue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's a perfect solution for that, right? That's that's an excellent use case. Yeah, eventual consistency is fine. I was I was presenting to a, a DB2 users group last week, and I mentioned the idea of eventual consistency, and you would have thought I had just told like the aristocrats joke. There was <laughs> shock and horror in the room, and people are okay with this. It was it was a completely different worlds. So. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know for. For some compute problems, eventual consistency is fine, and worrying about it within the, so the upper application stack, not a big deal, 
right? It's it's not something that's actually a problem. But if it is a problem, then maybe that's not the right solution. Like I don't I, – I, I get the willies whenever I think about eventual consistency in the context of like you know, my MasterCard account or my bank account. It makes me feel really uneasy because you know, when, when, you're, when you do software tests for a living, you've seen how the sausage gets made. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm amazed that anything works at all ever. Well, I've always said the worst kind of bug is one that fixes itself because it's just sitting there like a waiting time bomb. It's oh, like, yeah. Oh, this was a problem yesterday. It, it, it's working fine today. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it'll never be a problem ever again. <laughs> Ship it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's and and this is this is one of those things where yeah, if you if you don't understand how the bug came into being and how you fixed it in the first place, then the bug is still there. <laughs> it it may be somewhere else, but it's it's still there. So uh, you know, wrapping it back around, you you mean you were basically asking, you know, what do we have to offer the pure open source, fully DevOps enabled group? And I think for for computing problems where it's really just way easier to have one big honking image, let's just throw six terabytes of memory and fifty cores and forty you know gigabits of network throughput at a single operating system image, whether it's virtualized or not. And then run the software in that so that you don't have to chop it up into little tiny pieces. For certain computing problems, it's just way easier to do that. And it makes everything else, all the software that sits on top of it, way easier to develop. And you spend way less time trying to debug weird problems because NTP on one side of the United States is uh, you know half a second later than NTP on the other side of the United States. So then – Oh, well, how do you do high availability then? Well, when you only have one of these things, it's way easier to do high availability with one and then having it replicate to a different data center. And then it's just a single DNS record update. you got to flip at that point. You're not moving the entire world to flop over to your high availability peer. You mentioned uh, one big honking operating system, whether it's virtualized or not. And um, on a modern uh, mainframe platform, it seems like everything is virtualized, whether you're using it or not. Um, can you talk about like some of the the benefits? Like why why is it that way? Why do I have to have like a logical channel subsystem, and why do I have to deal with PHIDs if if all I want is an operating system hooked up to cards and run and do your thing? Um, yeah, it's like it's turtles all the way down, man. <laughs> <laughs> like e- even if you just want to run one big Linux image on a mainframe. You know, you are still running within a logical partition mm-hmm. because you, you don't have the option not to run in a logical partition anymore. The cool part about it is, is you know, it's, it's, it is still virtualized, which then means when you grow and you're gonna, when you are inevitably successful and you begin taking over the world of whatever business you happen to be in, when you grow, it positions you such that you can grow the infrastructure without interrupting what you already are doing. Since everything is already virtualized by default, then it allows you to take advantage of that and then start expanding your environment in the various geometries that we can. Oh, by the way, at the same time, it also allows you to make 
better use of the hardware that you have. Like, for example, when you're talking about network infrastructure, you don't just have one network adapter. You have two network adapters. So then if you're really advanced, you're doing something like link aggregation, right? So you're, you take those two network adapters and you bond them together into a single logical thing. Yeah, but that kind of depends on you actually owning the switch that they talk to, which kind of depends on you actually being in your own data center, right? If you're talking about doing this on public infrastructure, you, you don't get the ability to do this. Versus if you're in your own data center, you do channel bonding and you have redundant pairs and all this other stuff. But the cool part about it is is when you do this on the mainframe, you can create channel bonded pairs across all of your logical partitions with just two OSA adapters. You don't have to go and put 50 OSA adapters in the system if you have 25 virtual machines that you want to pair up because you can share the network adapters across all the logical partitions. And then if you're then doing virtualization in the logical partition, right, like you're running KVM or you're running ZVM, you can take a single network adapter and you can actually share it across all of the virtual machines in the system. right? On, on x86, if you're doing this, uh, the only way to share inside a KVM is with like open vSwitch or something. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to do Mac VTAP, it kind of depends on having dedicated devices to then run Mac VTAP on top of. Or you have to have something that's like a, an SRIOV-enabled adapter, and then, okay, you can share it like eight ways maybe. Versus a network adapter in the Z system, you can share it across 50 machines. If you don't particularly care about running quality of service on each of those IP stacks, you can share it across like a 1,000 machines. It it always amazed me when we'd have these very complicated network setups with like OSPF and shared link aggregation and everything, and you, you know how complicated the setup is and what kind of availability it gives you, but at the end of the day, what's coming out of the back of the mainframe is four little fiber you know, ports. <laughs> yeah. All that aggregation is handled in, in the virtualization and the subsystems. Like Right. So, I mean, you can you can share a network adapter across, you know, a thousand different operating system images if you need to. I mean, you know, if they all demand service at the same time, obviously it's not giving them dedicated bandwidth. We're not making bandwidth appear out of nowhere. But you don't have to go and buy dedicated hardware, you know, for each instance, right? You can the, – the, the whole design point of the mainframe is that you can basically share everything across everything and do so in an efficient way and oh by the way you can also really tightly control the the amount of service each of your virtual systems gets through the hardware and through the hypervisor itself and i think that's a really important point because you can do sharing on lots of systems right it, power systems do an incredible amount of sharing even x86 systems do an incredible amount of sharing it's that control and the ability to do this at a very a fine-grained management makes a big difference. Oh, yeah. And we basically can say you can, you can run production test and development on a single hardware footprint all at the same time, and you can guarantee that your production environment will never be impacted by test and development activities. You know, that's that's a very difficult guarantee to make on x86. You know, even 
with Linux KVM now, you know, we have the idea of C groups within the kernel that allow us to allocate memory and, or control memory and CPU resources across virtual machines. And it's it's pretty good, but it still doesn't get into you know disk and network I/O, right? So we we still don't have the same ability to throttle I/O on KVM, at least that I'm aware of. I haven't seen it yet. On you know on the Z system, we can essentially use the built-in hypervisor that the hardware offers, right? Logical partitioning to control the development and test images to prevent them from impacting production. And then if you're doing something really sciencey like, you know, ZOS workload manager, you can you can actually have workload manager on ZOS talking to the hardware saying, "Hey, I'm not giving an, I'm not getting enough, give me more." ZOS can actually ask the hardware for more resources and, you know, it can actually get it. So So we've talked a little bit about this the, the virtualization and how important that is and and how Connecting it to other things is a really important thing. The one client that we worked together on, uh, this was was really important from an I.O. perspective, right? They, their I.O. was kind of getting in the way. Right. And so, yeah, those guys – yeah, I remember those guys. Their issue was they, they built a software solution using Linux, but they built it using the x86 way of accomplishing – this high availability goal that they had and performance goal. And the parts that they had picked really were actually hurting them more than they were helping them. And so kind of what I did was, you know, I said, well, look, the mainframe solution for this as opposed to the x86 solution for this is just, you know, pull this off, pull this off, smush these two things together, share more of this. And then, you know, essentially what we did was by, by simplifying the software stack removing parts that were just not necessary for the mainframe Linux-based solution. We took the, the chains off of their I.O. configuration, and we actually created the opposite problem in that it was able to drive so much I.O., it was causing other problems for them. And so we ended up having to slow it down. <laughs> but, I mean, ultimately what, what happens is, is when, you start, when you start looking at, you know, kind of the real-world we have a problem. We're trying to figure out how to fix it for most customers. At least half of the ones that I've been involved with have always boiled down to it's fundamentally an I.O. problem. How do we get enough I.O. done within the time frame we have to do it in to meet whatever our goals are? And you know, and that's that's what the mainframe is for, right? If you if you look at a mainframe sitting there and, and you look at all of the uh the snazzy publicity photos, you never actually see the thing that makes the mainframe special, and that is the massive bundle of fiber that hangs out the bottom of the box and goes underneath the raised floor. And when I say massive bundle of fiber, I'm talking, you know, in in terms of a bundle size, it's like four inches across. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm holding my hand up in front of the microphone so you can see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's but, working. It's but it's, working for you. You know, and and, and I, I do uh, I do raised floor tours for like you know various groups that come through, and one of the things I always make a point to do is I stop at one end and I point to the machines that don't have covers on them, and I say, okay, look, you know, the thing that makes the mainframe special in comparison to everything else is all of the fiber that you see hanging off the front of those boxes. 
Like, look at all the yellow fiber you've got on there. All Each one of those yellow fibers is, you know, 16 gig per second. Look at all of the kind of bluey, aqua-y colors. Each of those is 40 gig per second. And, oh, by the way, the mainframe will drive all 60-something of those fibers at full speed while the applications are also running at full speed because there's dedicated processors in there just for running the I.O. When you talk about selling a mainframe to a customer, you say, okay, you're going to buy Mr. Customer this mainframe that has 105 application processors in it that you're going to pay your software license charges on. But in reality, that box that you're paying for 105 processors it actually has a thousand processors sitting in the I/O subsystem responsible for feeding those 105 processors. So, you know, it's it's for running I/O. Yeah, the, the the data that's coming out of those out of those that four inch pipe there is already consolidated. It's already been managed. That's that's not before it hits the router. That's consolidated out of the box. And when we're talking about work being done on processors, we're talking about actual business work, not the not the getting the bits all aligned so they can go down to the I.O. subchannel. Right. You know, the, the the processors in the mainframe that you are paying money for, paying money to IBM, paying money to your your operating system software vendor, paying money to you know application vendors if you pay money for applications. That money that you're paying there is it's for just the part of the system that runs your applications. And the design of the rest of the entire mainframe system is such that the part that you're paying money for is only running your work. All of the housekeeping tasks, moving data in and out, marshalling things onto adapters, doing all the checksums, all of that is done by other dedicated hardware that's there just for the purpose of keeping your application processors busy running your applications and making you money. Imagine taking a box like that and weaponizing it, right? Here's my way of doing a, a denial of service attack. You know, taking this huge machine with all this I.O. capability just to take somebody down. Frank going right away to, to justify his Dr. Evil tag. <laughs> one, one of the things you've always talked about when whenever we've done raised floor tours is the idea of the, the million-dollar server, you know, the, the – <laughs> The straw that breaks the camel's back. I wonder if you could uh, regale our <laughs> listeners with, with that because it's it re- it makes a really good point as to why consolidation and virtualization is a uh, is key. Oh, it's it's the only way to do business anymore. Yeah, right. Um, so you know you're you're in charge of providing IT service to some company, right? And one part of the business comes and says, "Hey, we got this great idea. We want to we want to make this application, and it's going to go." and make our company an entirely new line of business and we're going to get fabulous, fabulously wealthy if we can get this application up and running. And I just need this one server image installed and you know plugged into the network. Okay, not a problem. Uh, looking at the requirements uh, here, it looks like this server is going to cost us, if we're going to buy an x86 machine for this, it's going to be about $8,000 with all the stuff you need. I'm just making a number up. Great. But, yeah, I'm more than happy to spend $8,000 to improve our business. Oh, it's yeah, because we're going to make millions off millions. of this. Millions. <laughs> Great millions. Investment. 
Buy that eight, <coughs> buy that eight thousand dollars server. So the eight thousand dollars server shows up on you know at the shipping you know dock next to the data center, and you go and you unpack it, and you walk out on the floor somewhere, and huh? Okay, well I've got a spot in this rack right here that I could install it, but all of the power plugs at the back of the rack are occupied. Okay, well, I'll go talk to the facilities guy and say, okay, well, can we get more power run under the floor? And the facilities guy comes back to you and says, no, I can't run any more power for you. All of the panels in the computer room are full. There is no more place where I can you know, plug in a new circuit to run more power for that server. And then you say, oh, well, what was it going to cost us to get a new panel put in? And the facilities guy scratches his head and says, hmm, well, I'm going to have to go talk to some other people about that. And the facilities guy wanders off. Talks to building owners and blah, blah, blah. And then he comes back and says, okay, here's the deal. The panel itself would cost about 50 grand for the electrical work to get it put in. And, you know, we would have to take the entire floor down for a weekend so that we could tie into the load center and the basement. But we hit a problem in that we're already maxed out in the load center and the basement. If we want to get more power, we actually have to upgrade the load center in the basement. And the problem with that then is then we got to go and talk to the power company, Con Ed or whomever, and say, hey, we're upgrading our load center. We want to make sure that we've actually got adequate feed from the, you know, the distribution center down the street. And then Con Edison goes, no, no, you, you can't upgrade your load center. We can't give you more power. We're already maxed out at the substation down the street. And oh, by the way, you are already consuming 80% of the power that that, subs- that substation produces. We would have to install an entire new substation if you want to get more power in that building. <laughs> so now your, you know, what, $8,000 server basically is now requiring a subst- substation installation and, you know, a million dollars worth of upgrades just to get it in this one building. At that point, it's cheaper just to go buy a new building. Obviously, Jay, uh, people who are listening to this, they're, they they want to they want to be just like you, as most of us do. All, um, all of us want to be just like Jay. Exactly. Shirt and everything. That's a nice shirt. There's a nice shorts too. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Say somebody is they're already a Linux guru. They you know it's their operating system. It's what they do all their work on. It's what they go to. They don't want to touch anything else. And they, they hear about, you know, what you can do with, with virtualized servers on the mainframe and they, they want to hack to Gibson. Um, what, what does somebody do to, to get used to uh, or to get their hands on like a Linux instance on Z or get familiar with it? Well, probably the easiest way to do it is to go to um, the Linux One public cloud system. So uh, that's actually a system that's hosted over here at Marist College. Uh, there's a gateway through IBM.com. I'm sure someone will go and dig up the actual URL for that. And yeah, we'll post put it, it in the show notes. And from there, you can go and request a Linux on the mainframe virtual machine. And you can do whatever you want. You get the root password. It is yours. And it is free. And I think you can have it for 90 days. And then you can ask for like an extension of some point, of some time. And then when you decide you really like it, um, we have other options to go after that. But, you know, that's where you would start. As long as Frank doesn't try to weaponize it. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> so, Jay, one more thing before we uh, kick you out of here with your donuts is um, we'd like to play a little game with you. We'd like to call My Favorite Acronym. My Favorite Acronym. 
So the rules of my favorite acronym are as follows. I have a list of acronyms here. Uh, as you know, this uh, the mainframe is a very acronym-heavy uh, environment. One of them is made up. The rest are real. You have to tell me uh, which one you think is uh, made up and which ones are real. And for extra bonus points, you can tell me what the uh, what they stand for. That makes sense. Sure. All right. <laughs> let's let's uh, let's get on with this. So the first one I have, CDRM. CDRM. Correct. That is the uh, customer distributed relation media. Uh, part part of the installation package that comes with every single system. That is incorrect. <laughs> it is also correct. <laughs> it is also correct. <laughs> That's not what he was looking for. That's I not think. what I was looking for. But it is true. <laughs> but okay. It is a real answer. The one I had is NVTAM, the function, is the cross-domain resource manager. Ah. NVTAM, the function, the system service control point, the SSCP, that controls initiation and termination of cross-domain sessions. Cool. All right, so you're 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 one for one so far. You realize I know nothing about the internals of ETAM, right? <laughs> Why not? I thought you knew everything. Anybody that tells you they know everything is a liar. SMDS. SMDS. I feel like it's a data set flavor of some type, but you're you're smart to go in that direction. Half of that prediction is correct. So it's a data. I I will also point out that I have a made-up definition for Somewhere the thing that I that. made up. <laughs> of course you do. Yep. Um, SMDS. Yeah, I got no idea, man. Do you think it's real or something I made up? Dude, if you're going to sit here and throw out four-letter acronyms... <laughs> He's got some four-letter... It's, it's going to be really tough. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll... Is switched multi-megabit data service. Really? Yep. No. Mm-hmm. That's a bunch of crap. That's... It is a high-speed technology offered by telephone companies in the United States. Like I said, that's a bunch of crap. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Moving on. Moving on. I think this one, you probably know what this one is. APPN. Oh, that's Advanced Peer-to-Peer Network. <laughs> yep. Okay. Okay. An extension to SNA. Yeah. SNA's great. It was, it was a really important, uh, important part when we started doing TCP IP. Oh, actually. I just got SNA configured on the two of our VM systems, so now we have console access at least when the IP network breaks. Are you using a lighthouse? No, we're not using a lighthouse. We're going th- we're going through the IBM, you know, internal VTAN based network. I can go and get to uh usually from S three ninety VM I can get there. Oh that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. Um N J E. Oh that's network job entry. You're correct. You're correct. L Q R C. Um that would be No, no, I can't do that one. That one's vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, logical queue resource control. Hmm. What's that part of? I don't know. I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally, we have uh, KSDS. Oh, that would be the keyed sequential data set. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's good. It, yeah. It's He's good. A, it's it's part of the it's part of a VTAM resource. No, a VSAM correct cluster resource. Uh, we used to have to deal with a bunch of that junk when I did a lot of SMPE service. Wow. All right, round, round a hand for Mr. Mr. Yeah. Here. That's a lot of acronyms. Yeah. I, I, I got kind of bored in the middle. Well, thanks a lot for wasting another hour of your life with us. Okay. <laughs> you're... you're... <laughs> 
Yeah, Jay, you're you're a real good guy. Thanks for stopping by. No matter what lies. he says about us on the lies. interweb, yeah. all lies. Posting terrible. Believe nothing on the internet. Believe nothing. So that was Jay Brenneman. I'm glad that's over. Can I make this any more uncomfortable? Yeah, yeah, probably. If you have ideas, suggestions for future episodes of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff, uh, send all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. Uh, we also have at Terminal Talk out on Twitter. Nobody uses terminals anymore. You know that, right? That, that's the joke. Yeah, that's the whole thing. You just ruined the whole thing. Now, now we have to go back and call it something else. Good. Is it possible to listen to silence? <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in. This has been uh, awesome. And I and I, I hope the donuts made the trip worth it. It was the only reason I came. Okay, fair enough. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.